0: Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast that helps you understand how to increase the value of your business, what your company is worth, and what your exit options are. Host Ryan Tansom and his guests give you all the information you need to get clarity and control over your business and take pride in a valuable company that gives you freedom and choices to exit on your terms. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 178, and this is Ryan Tansom, your host, where we are talking about value growth. We're in a mini-series that is about principle number four of our five growth and exit principles and that is increased value if you didn't listen to episode one with Ken Sanginario about how to increase the value of a company go check it out it sets a great foundation for today's topic about how to build a strategic plan that is value growth centric so inside of the fourth principle we talk about increasing value as it relates to the eight functional areas of a business so there are eight areas planning leadership sales marketing, people operations, Finance and legal, and each of these different functional areas, and there's a bunch of subsets underneath them that all roll up into these eight. That they each of these eight areas have to be working in level with each other, and then the same level of effectiveness and maturity. If if they're way out of whack, then you're not effectively growing your company. And the way to effectively grow your company and to grow the value is by de-risking your business and making sure that they all work together in unison. So the Would be is if your sales and marketing are off the charts amazing, but your finance and operations are weaker, you're you're not effectively going to be able to monetize the growth because of your weak area. So we need to have all these in level. We need to figure out how to prioritize what projects we're working on. And if you're running a system like EOS operating the entrepreneur operating system or Rockefeller Habits or whatever it might be, you need to figure out where you're trying to go and how you're gonna prioritize these different projects and making sure that you are increasing the value of the business and not focusing on annual income and solving for your w2 income and distribution this is about solving for value creation and the value of the business so what we have found out after working with tons of clients is that there are generally a few of these different eight categories that are the weakest among them all and that would be the planning area the finance area, and then the sales and marketing. So what we are doing today is we have Greg Meredith on the show that is going to talk about strategic planning. He has decades of experience advising customers and clients. He's owned businesses himself. He's an entrepreneur, and he's broken strategic planning into 10 easy steps and different activities and exercises that you have to go through to build your strategic plan. If you're thinking, oh, you know what? I've got a strategic plan, and I don't need this as much because I'm running EOS or whatever it might be you should really dial in because we talk about in this episode how eos or a vto or goals of going from 10 to 15 million dollars those are goals they're not strategies understanding how you're picking your strategies and what choices you're making whether you're going through distribution channels or whether you're going to go to different geographic markets different products and services that you're picking up these are big overarching strategies that need to have different exercises to pick which strategy you you are choosing with data and for the right reasons that are getting you to the value growth that you're trying to accomplish, then you use EOS or Rockefeller Habits to implement those strategies. I've seen people use EOS or Rockefeller Habits and implement really terrible strategies really fast. So check out this episode because it's going to make it very easy for you to digest as Greg describes these different steps and the exercises that are in each of these steps where you could have a strategic plan literally in a, in a month and a half after a few sessions so you know which direction you're going and how you're going to accomplish the growth that you want to accomplish. If you're interested in this topic and you want to dive more into it, check out our two-day growth and exit boot camp that is based on two companies that are $10 million in revenue and $1 in EBITDA where we walk through the five different principles. We dive deep into the eight functional areas of value growth, dive into valuations, exit options like ESOPs, private equity, and how this all ties into you identifying what you finally want from your business with the end in mind and then backing into everything. So without further ado, I really hope you enjoy this episode with Greg. Sponsored by Arcona's Growth and Exit Boot Camps, two days jam-packed with material on the five growth and exit principles and the world of mergers and acquisitions. You'll walk away knowing exactly what steps to take to get your target valuation and your best exit option. Two days at Arcona's Boot Camp will give you the clarity to control the rest of your journey as an entrepreneur. Good morning, Greg. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Ryan? Doing good. I'm excited to have you on the show. I was just saying that we just wrapped up one of our boot camps and a lot of people are going, Well, I guess I need a strategic plan. And, you know, I'm excited to have you on because I wanna debunk some myths. I wanna go over what is strategic planning and why is it actually important because even before I started doing what I'm doing, if you would have told me seven years you need a strategic plan, I would all that comes to mind is a consultant that wants to rob your pockets and leave you with a binder and walk away. <laughs> so, uh, we're going to talk about how that's not the case, right? Um, that's not the case. That's not. It can be the case, but it's not yeah, right, right. the case. Right. So let's uh, let's just start with the listeners that don't know you, your background, like how the heck did you get into what you're doing today? Yeah. So I. Uh... I'll take you back. I,
1: I got an MBA from Ohio State and I uh, wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do some consulting work. So I actually set up my own consulting practice right out of graduate school and found myself doing a lot of work with small, mid-sized businesses. And one of the things that became evident was that uh, most lacked a strategic plan. And so I started doing a little bit of work in that area. Uh, man, that's been 15 years ago. Um, then, when and, and worked back in uh, in in other settings. I worked at a software startup, and then when I when I took a job as the director of consulting for a local CPA firm, I uh, I, I really decided that uh, one of my focuses was going to be on how do I drive real value at my clients and so that's where i came to boy these folks need help strategic planning and spent uh, about five years um where the majority of the work that i was doing was helping small and mid-sized businesses create strategies that are going to have a positive impact on their on their company so so that's my background lots of consulting work um but also an operator i've, I've worked at large corporations small Businesses and uh, have a have a pretty diverse background that lets me um, add some value to a, a host of different uh, clients and and industries. So, and you've been a business owner yourself too, or
0: currently, right?
1: I, yeah. I am. I currently am. I I had my own consulting practice for quite a while, where I was a, a solopreneur, and now have a small manufacturing business that I own and operate, and um and and then help uh, clients with strategy uh, as kind of my uh, the, the fun part of my my job. I, I love working in this space and still get to do it, even though I am a small business owner.
0: Well, which I think is important because, and that's why I brought it up. Because have you ever heard the the phrase "those that can't consult"? So we're just going gonna... yeah. <laughs> to so I I just gonna debunk that right now because you actually have payroll, you have your own cash flow, and you got your own personal guarantees probably out there. So there's some street Absolutely. credibility with that. So okay like... well, and I understand
1: what it means. I understand what that that consulting fee means right it's it's uh It's not insignificant, and to make that kind of an investment comes right out of the bottom line and so I get it from uh, from my client's perspective that you've really got to be able to demonstrate value if you're going to write a, a big check it's It's not like the the corporate world where where those kind of fees just disappear into nothingness um, <laughs> this, this is coming out and, and this is Hey, I, I can't put this money away, or I can't take that trip, or I can't invest in that equipment, or hire that other person. Um, these are real fees. So, so I I love the the ability to go in and with confidence tell people, hey, we're going to add enough value. We're gonna we're gonna more than compensate for the uh, the fees that you pay for this uh, planning.
0: And it's 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 important because again, like I said, so many there there's a there's such a huge challenge with consultants that are out there. They give a bunch of suggestions. They don't even necessarily see the financials and they walk away and they're not responsible for the person that they, you know, the, the owner that's got to go fire someone or go do something or implement an ERP system, all that stuff. That's really hard work. It's easy to suggest it without having to go do it. So as we, I want to hear from you, the, your definition of strategic planning, because it's like, I mean, if you Googled it, I, I mean, I, I bet you there's what, 20 million different hits on you know, business strategic planning. So like, what is it and what is it not? And maybe even to preface it, um, with this, Greg is like, you know, in the twin cities here, there are thousands of companies that are running EOS and you know, there's, and which has also grown significantly across the U S and yeah, I think Gino even says in the book traction that EOS is not strategic planning. I mean, the, your VTO are goals because your your goals are to go from 10 million to 15 million. But like, how are you doing that? So like, and then with also that kind of context is like, then there's the you know Procter and Gamble like you know hundred thousand dollar three ring binder. So like for you, like how do you, given that kind of foundation, yeah. maybe kind of give your definition and what it is. Uh, that's a great question. And and so what I typically
1: will do when I do a presentation on strategic planning, I will start by asking people to define strategic planning. And I'll either ask them to define strategic planning or I will ask them to define strategy. Because what I find is people conflate the two, right? They, in, their, in their minds, they think, oh, strategy equals strategic planning. And what I always start with is communicating strategic planning is the process by which you come up with compelling strategies. but. You can do a whole lot of strategic mm-hmm. planning, and I've seen clients that have told me, "Hey, uh, we've done strategic planning. We do strategic planning," and then I ask them to explain their strategies, and they can't. They are silent <laughs> because they're like, "Well, wait a minute. I filled out the the forms, and I, uh, you know, I created a budget or an execution plan, and and I come back to, but what are your strategies? What are what are you going to do?" So, so starting here is a really uh, great place to start. So. When I talk about strategic planning, I talk about a process. And our process that we use is, is one we call simply strategic. And um, we have a 10-step process. But I will also tell you that if at the end of that process, we have not created compelling strategies, strategies that are going to transform your business, then we've failed. So strategic planning is really just coming up with strategies, And the way I define strategy is how you create a sustainable competitive advantage through the acquisition, organization, and deployment of assets. And I think it might be valuable for us to spend a little time breaking that down just because that's mm-hmm. a lot of words and it's a lot of you know business words, just like when you talk about strategy and having uh, you know uh, millions of hits on Google, if you talk about strategy or strategic mm-hmm. planning, I think the idea of a sustainable competitive advantage, people may have heard of it or it's just business speak to them, but I think there's real power in understanding what that Looks like, and how small and mid-sized businesses should still be driving for and trying to create these sustainable competitive advantages. So, so that's how I define strategy: is creating those sustainable competitive advantages, and you do that by um, acquiring, organizing, and deploying assets
0: at your it. disposal. I love it, and we are yeah. going di- to we are going to dive into that too, and then some of the components of how to do that, and then maybe just to do to. to because I'm just thinking of my, if I was talking to myself seven years ago, it's okay. This is not when you say there's a process. There's a start and stop to this project, right? It's not the ongoing process of running the business like an EOS or an ongoing operating system, That's right? right. There, there's a there's an outcome to the end of this. That's right. Now I do find that some clients, and
1: and this is kind of jumping to the end, but some of our clients aren't running an EOS, and and I I love the EOS model. I've I've worked with several clients who who use strategic planning as the, as the funnel, the input into their EOS, which is the way mm-hmm. I think it should operate. Yep,
0: yep, yep. Um, but
1: some clients aren't running that EOS. And so what I'll do is I'll help them create uh, what I just call quarterly priority plans so that they are, are taking a, a light version of what you would get from a, a, a true operating system, mm-hmm. a professional management system, and make sure that they are putting actions to the strategies that they've created. But, I love it. but yes, it is, um, it's intended not as a replacement for, but really the kickoff point to say, what are, you're, you're creating this efficiency engine. You're going to run your business um, a, against a really well-defined uh, system. What are you running to, right? If you're pointed at the wrong thing, um, an efficient engine is going to take you in the wrong direction faster.
0: And so <laughs> that's, that's exactly... really where <laughs> that's so true. Yeah, though. that's
1: really yeah, that's really where we 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 differentiate is to say, you know, strategy tells you what you should be doing. How are you going to win, right? Where are you going to play, and how are you going to win? And that is those are the big the big picture questions. That then you funnel into a, a really great professional management
0: system to um, t- to execute. That's uh, you. There's a lot of gold in that because I mean I, it's also the whole another analogy is if you've got the ladder on the wrong wall, you run up really fast, you're on the wrong wall still. <laughs> and that's <there's>, right. <laughs> I got a couple in in that light too. I think these these are some good stories that uh, as we dive into what is strategic plan and kind of some of the core components of it, I. From my old perspective, our old business, I mean, like we had you it know, started off as a co- in the, in the copier industry. then there was consolidation with telecom and software, managed IT services, and then we even picked up I mean, people are going to laugh water filtration unit. We, we literally had a water filtration. We were competing with Culligan in one of our divisions. And so why that all happened is because we would go to trade shows and go to our uh, business. You know, business conferences, we'd be sitting at the bar and some owner from, you know, Atlanta would tell us what they're doing. We'd go home and then we would implement it without actually knowing. So, they, a lot of entrepreneurs, I think, they're obviously competitive. They have a lot of the flashy object syndrome, they're visionaries. So, what, what would you say to the people that are thinking that they already have lots of strategies and they can't even execute the ones that they're on? And they have all this stuff that's coming at them. Does that make yes. sense to <laughs> me?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the way I describe this is um, there are opportunistic strategies and there are prescriptive strategies. And so when I talk to entrepreneurs, I tell everyone, and and I think this is true. I've worked with you know companies with three hundred million dollars in revenue. I've worked with companies with uh, less than a million dollars in revenue. And the hardest thing to do is to go from zero revenue to two million in revenue. And that person is a very unique type of entrepreneur, right? So I listened a little bit to your, your uh, podcast with Gino mm-hmm. um, from, from the EOS, from the Traction Group. And um, there are some nuggets in there that I think are absolutely gold. But the skill set that I always find from that zero to 2 million is you have to understand your customers well. Either you've been there or you've served them in some capacity, but you have to be very flexible and opportunistic because you may be trying to sell them water and they need ice. <laughs> or you're trying to sell them ice and they need Coca-Cola. And so that opportunistic entrepreneur is the one who succeeds, right? Because, because he or she can pivot so quickly and say, oh, well, you don't need ice, you need water. And all of a sudden, you know, she's <laughs> figured melting. it out and she's yeah, selling them water. <laughs> and, and yeah, and, and there you go. You've got, to, you've got what they need. What happens though is that entrepreneur that's wired that way for success, then has a company that she's running that's a $5 million company or a $10 million company. And she hasn't changed her mindset. She hasn't gone from all of my strategies are opportunistic to a prescriptive strategy approach. And so I think both are very, very... They're they're not impossible, but early-stage companies need to be flexible, and and consider lots of opportunistic strategies. But as you find product market fit, and as you get into a space where you know what works and you know how you're making money, you need to become increasingly prescriptive. And that's very, very hard for that early stage entrepreneur who's wired in a way that when I'm sitting at a bar and I hear something (laughs) great, I'm going to do that, right? And so um, saying no for an opportunistically minded entrepreneur is very tough. And, um, and, and so that's part of what having, um, having a team around you and, and, and bringing in an outside consultant can help you do is not say yes to the right things, but say no to the wrong thing. And and we spend a lot of time in our process of saying that's a good idea, but it's not a good idea for now because you've got these great ideas over here.
0: (laughs) Wow. You brought up, I mean, you nailed it, you nailed it. And I think what's interesting in the just because it's hot on my mind, because I just did that interview with Gino, but like with the visionary versus integrator, essentially this opportunistic entrepreneur needs a COO, CFO that's going to continuously do and implement the stuff that you put into place. And by the way, it, I think what happens is part of the problems and the root, the root of it is it's boring to them, right? <laughs> so then they're just doing different things. But the you know as we get into this, I, I want to. Maybe explain why this is so important is because the private equity firms and the people that are strategic business buyers, they know that being prescriptive like this makes a shitload of money, right? So, what happens mm-hmm. is doing this the right way builds value and builds a cash flow machine. And it, there's a reason to do this. So, even the competitive visionary entrepreneur that's listening, there's a reason to do this stuff because the outcome is so ridiculous. And the reason that a PE firm would go in and buy a company that's not doing this is because they're going to do it and they're going to do the boring stuff and put people in place to do it because it's worth, it's worth its weight in gold. I have a uh,
1: a, a relevant story. I listened to another podcast and um, it's called acquired. It's about companies that sell. Uh, It's great. And and yesterday's episode is about an entrepreneur from Canada, originally a, a German guy his name is Toby Luca. And he set out to... Well, he originally set out to sell snowboards online and figured out that, hey, I need to set up a uh, a way to do this a lot easier because all of the tools that he was having to use were just too complicated. So he set up this suite of tools to create this lifestyle business for himself. And his goal was, I want to have 20 employees and I want to have this great lifestyle business and you know make a little bit of money. And over time, it became increasingly clear after he turned down venture capital consistently. Okay, I, I'm on to something here, and he ended up building a company that now I think has I know an valuation of you know thirty. You know, you know the company.
0: Well, I think he was on uh, uh, NPR's uh, "How I Built a Shopify." Oh, Shopify! You got it. That's it. Yeah. Shopify is the company.
1: So it's his whole goal story. was to build a lifestyle it's- business. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And and what he realized was. Oh wait a minute! I figured this out, right? I I know how this works. This market is huge, and he was uniquely positioned to to really grow that thing. His partner in that effort got out after you know bef- before the rapid growth happened, and and he looked at himself and said, "Oh, this is not fun for me anymore. I don't want to scale this business. I I'm an early stage guy. I want to get back into more early stage ventures." And so, um, it's is very you know it it if you're an entrepreneur and you're used to that excitement of solving the new problem, uh, being, you know, so responsive and being able to pivot, um, it's very challenging to, to then say, Oh, Nope, I'm going to be prescriptive. I found it. I just have to run this play a thousand times. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. and Toby, what convinced him was he said, I'm going to run five tests to acquire new clients and, when he ran them, he said, if i if two of them work, I will go out and and start talking to venture capitalists, and he found that all five of them worked right oh so God. every everything he tried in that experiment worked, and he's like, "Okay, I need to give in to the fact that I've stumbled into something great so so yeah, i I think we would all love to have that business at the end that was, hey, thirty five billion dollars or whatever it's worth but but th- making that deal of, oh, but that means I'm going to have to do a lot of things." That maybe aren't exciting for me, that I don't love that don't come naturally i'm going to have to maybe take some risks that aren't you know easy for me you know part of this process of strategic planning is coming to grips with what are you willing to do and what are you not and and it's different for everybody so so part of what we work on with clients is is really helping them lay that out and and
0: make those trade offs which is and, and perfect story and example for it. And then, you know, one more, and then we can get into the nuts and bolts of what is actually the inputs for the, 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 strategic plan. But, you know, when I think about, and I, I don't know if I mentioned it on the podcast with Gino, but, you know, he was talking about, you know, as an entrepreneur, do you like business B2B or do you like B2C? Are you a product or you a service? I mean, and that he was talking about it as an individual, but what's interesting is people that have grown a company, they might be in the company that they don't like. and. And so, you know, yep. having that being a filter too, because I, I didn't like selling equipment, which is why I pushed towards the solutions and the IT services and all this stuff. Yeah. But I realized that there's a, there's another competitor here in town that just stuck to copiers and managed print and they made thousand times more money than we did. <laughs> and it's like, yep. if we would have done some sort of strategic planning, say, Hey, what are we going to do and not do? We'd be, we'd have more money. But like, I, I, we essentially were our own worst nightmares because we didn't realize that there was our personalities were also coming out as it related to the the strategic plan or lack of.
1: I, I'm working with a client right now that it's a, it's a family business and they were sitting around the table talking about extensions that they could do to their business, right? We could go into you know this digital space, we could do this, we could do that. And one of the brothers just stopped and said, you know what, guys, we're really good with physical assets. We're really good at, at building things, at managing things, at, at taking something physical and putting it in the ground. And, um, and it centered the conversation with them around, hey, you know, this is part of who we are. This is part of our DNA. Not saying that we couldn't do those other things, but as long as we have great opportunities in the space where we're great, let's keep chasing those opportunities as opposed to the ones that maybe look attractive but we don't demonstrate the knowledge and expertise that mm. we do on this other side so it's a great way. So it, it's a it's a common it's a common thing every the grass is always greener every product company wants to be a services company <laughs> every services company wants to start selling products i mean it's it's it, it, it's common
0: so now as we get into the guts of what, okay, what does go into a strategic plan? You know, uh, my partner, Pat always says, who we both know, this strategic plan is just your, it's just a set of choices, right? But then how are yep. you making those choices? So maybe kind of like give a run through of yeah. what, is, what is involved in the strategic plan. And then I think where you're you've got some different uh, functions of that strategic plan. I think we can dive a little bit further into
1: i I love that and um and and that idea that uh strategy is really boils down to some of those key choices and trade offs i think is is a great framework to to think about strategic planning um and and I'll say up front that there are a lot of good strategic planning processes um i think there are, you know, you could use a lot of different processes and come out with a good strategic plan. My uh, encouragement, my challenge to everyone who's thinking about it is make sure that you are not just going through the motions, right? The analysis is great. Um, Coming up with action items is great. But if you don't really focus on those compelling strategies, um, you can miss the boat. You can get convince yourself that you have done the work when you really haven't done the hard work of creating strategies. So as we talk through this and these elements, know that it's all building to what are our strategies. And so in our process, the 10-step process, and um, and we're building to step eight, which is what are our strategies? So, so our first step is uh, just a company overview. We always want to work with clients so that they can put together a synthesis of the history of the company, um, what's their mission vision and values? Some people use a purpose statement, um, but we want to work with a lot of what's already there. I always talk to people about uh, some of these key elements, and there's a lot of um, people that are jaded by having spent you know three days to come up with a twelve word sentence. Uh, their mission statement, And uh, I, I, you know, I, I tell them, hey, we're not going to do that. We're going to push through these basic elements and we're going to have a company overview. And the purpose of the overview is I find that lots of people um, end up sharing their strategic plan. They might share it with a potential investor. They might use it as part of a loan package with the bank. They may give it to an advisory board that they're using. And so just having that, that hey, this is who we are you know, just some basics of this is how we got started. This is our core business model. Here are some key metrics, bas- basic financial metrics that that would give a snapshot of the company. And so we um, we we start with that company overview. The second thing that we do is is work on a market and competitor analysis. So I want to make sure that the clients look and say and and answer that question: um, Where are we going to play, and who else is playing in this space? Right, because that often gets overlooked there's just this assumption that hey we're a copier company and we you know we do copiers there are other opportunities there are other ways that you could be deploying your assets to other markets and we want to make sure that we're stopping and looking and thinking about the markets that you're serving today are there markets that you should be exiting right like there mm-hmm. there are clients all the time where would you put them on a a four box grid, that, that old VCG matrix that many of your listeners will have seen where it talks about stars and dogs and, you know, cash question cows. Marks, yeah. cash cows. Yeah, you, you've seen it. That when you put their market in the dog box, right? And they <laughs> say, you know, they will have told you, oh, no, it's not a high growth market. Oh, no, we don't have a, a big share of the market. And then I say, well, you know, according to the Boston Consulting Group, who's been doing this longer than any of us, uh, that market is a dog. And then they get really defensive, right? It's like, well, you're telling me my market's a dog. And I'm like, oh no, you said it was a dog. You were the one that said it's not growing and you don't have a big percentage of the share. And, um, and just coming to grips with that. Uh, and, and then a real honest competitor analysis, right? Uh, I always try to draw a, a box, a, a four box grid where it shows your company in a positive light, right? Like where, hey, you're in the upper right-hand quadrant. You have a couple of axes points that are are great. So maybe um, you're high growth and you have um, uh, lots of brand prestige. You're in the upper right-hand corner. That's awesome against your competitors. And you can see like, oh man, that's really good. But then you can also draw that competitive analysis and look and see yourself in the bottom left, right, where you can say, oh, but we're low profit, and you know maybe we have high employee turnover. You know mm-hmm. whatever it might be, where you against your competitors. Find out where you look good against them. Find out where you look bad, so that you can understand um, from a from a, a a potential customer perspective. Hey, this is uh, this is how people view us. This is how mm-hmm. people think of us. So we'll spend some time uh, doing that um, that
0: marketing competitor analysis as step two. Well, I was going to say, and just a the couple comments on that too is so many times like that, That that's so crucial. And by the way, this is like, you know, what a private equity firm does with their investment thesis. They do that and then decide what markets yeah. and, and, and place and industries they want to get into. Because my old industries, the, the print volume is declining by 25% every single year. I mean, like, Ooh, that doesn't sound appealing. Right. So like you, you start to like look at this and say, well, how are you going to deploy your assets and why and where? I mean, too many times I've seen it where it's a passion or an interest of the owner so they just keep doing yeah. it and it's the sunk cost fallacy where like i we've got all this time and money into it like they it's just there's so much emotion tied up into it but like literally looking at it objectively say okay is there even an opportunity to grow in here and get your return
1: absolutely and they they have these valuable skills and assets but all they've ever done is um they've they've served this market over here if they just pivoted you know 40 degrees and they looked at a different market they those same skills and assets and talents would be really effective, but they cannot see that because there's so much emotional tie back to back to the market that they grew up in. I I I had a, a a client one time that 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 was the exact case, right? He had grown up in the chimney business, right? So he had had grown up in the chimney and made products for the chimney service business, and it was a tiny little niche, as you might imagine, but the skills were equivalent to a lot of the things that they made were, were used for decks as well. Right. And so mm-hmm. they had this little chimney business that was tiny and then they had this deck business. Well, he spent all of his time and managerial energy and, and dollars on the chimney because he had 25 years of experience there when the deck business was growing at you that's know five, yeah, yeah. five X the rate Another, and, uh, and couldn't that. get out of his, couldn't, couldn't, couldn't get out of his way Mentally. personally. So he had to bring yeah. in somebody else to do it. Right. Well, he, another, a, he he knew it he he understood it and and saw that tie and he was like i've got to find somebody to run this deck business because i love chimneys like it was mm-hmm. it was just he knew he couldn't do it so he brought somebody in else
0: it, it's a, another good example of that is i've got a client there they do a lot of project installation for technology for retail and oh, it was so funny because the this uh sales director there said you know when it really boils down to it, we are a really good project management and implementation company. So then it like took them outside of just retail. And it was like, you could get into healthcare, you could get into hot, uh, you know, hotels. I mean, like you could be doing yep. telecom or wifi. I mean, it just, it was like this whole, like, what are you really good? At? It was just, like you said, it was that perfect 40 degrees pivot to kind of think about it a little bit differently. Sorry, I kept going. I know you got to go. No, couple. no, that's awesome. No, the, the third one is sustainable competitive advantage. I want to spend a little bit of time on this. Just l- l-
1: when I talk about a sustainable competitive advantage, which is a key part of defining what a strategy is, right? Strategy is about creating those sustainable competitive advantages. Sustainable competitive advantages are these advantages you have over your competition that will allow you to achieve higher margins or generate more sales or you know, m- maybe even retain more customers, right? So so, it's something that gives you a real advantage over the competition. And an example that I often use is McDonald's. So, when I was in um, business school in the early 2000s, I had took a class. That class had a professor who said, Hey, you should all, even though you're poor you know, graduate students, you should all be investing in an IRA. At the time, the max contribution was three grand. And so I took him up on it and decided rather than you know, buying a, a, a simple, a mutual fund, I was going to go out and pick stocks, right? So I decided I was going to pick three stocks. And I started doing this research on these stocks. And I read an analyst report of McDonald's and something resonated in it that has I've never forgotten. And that is that the guy said, whatever the market cap for McDonald's was at the time, let's say it was 5 billion or $10 billion. He said, what the market is valuing McDonald's as today as a restaurant company, but it should not be valued as a restaurant company. It should be valued as a real estate company. And he went on to make the case that what McDonald's strategy had been for the last 50 years, since the early 1950s, was acquiring the best locations in the best towns all over the United States and then eventually the world. And he said, you know, of course, they deploy those assets today, that real estate, against. McDonald's restaurant, but they could flip that relatively quickly and start to deploy those assets against any number of other restaurant concepts or, you know, other retail opportunities or office space or, or whatever, that the real value that they had created, you know, there's value in the brand and the golden arches and all those things, but the real value was the real estate. And he said, if you value that as real estate. Rather than having a $10 billion market cap, it would have an $18 billion market cap. And so it's a clear buy. And so I bought it. But that's the, that's the basis of when I try to explain to people what is a sustainable competitive advantage, having the best corner in every small town in America is a sustainable competitive advantage for McDonald's, a sustainable competitive advantage for McDonald's, right? You can't just go and create the best corners, you know, over Mm -hmm. and over. And so any competitor, Wendy's or Burger King or whoever it is, if you just start to notice who's got the better corner in three out of four cases, McDonald's is going to be in a better location than their competitors because they were there first. And so that is a sustainable competitive advantage. And that's what you as a business owner are looking for. What are those things that we have? What can we develop how can we pull those assets together in a way that's going to lead to this long-term sustainable competitive advantage
0: okay so great example and i want to see what you think about this example because i just immediately made me think of um this gentleman i interviewed on my show god this is a couple years ago <clears throat> norm Brodsky. he was uh he had a business called um it's irrelevant um with his name is, but essentially they competed with like iron mountain so document storage and this is back in yep. the day, the guy used to be an attorney and he would grew a company up, sold, or his whole goal was to hit a hundred million. He had 3000 employees. The facts came out and then destroyed him because he was in career business. So he went a hundred million and then broke. And then he went and he, he, he started the storage business and they were doing 25 million in revenue, Greg, and 10 million in EBITDA <laughs> and how he did it. He sold it for like $110 million. So oh, how he did it. Oh, and I he, love he, it he said the pivoting point was he actually found what you're labeling as a sustainable competitive advantage because when they were looking at their business and there was all about you know essentially storing people's files and then you know delivering them back for the attorneys when they were going to be you know uh, viewing them he looked at his warehouse at one point he said you know what we're not in the paper storage business we're in the real estate business and then they actually looked at the real estate rent so instead of looking at it like storage they literally optimized the entire storage as literally like an analysis like rent, like an apartment like rental mm-hmm. and increasing yep. the rent per square foot for the entire warehouse and he crushed yep. his competition because of how they optimized yep. the storage and then he was able to like uh, price things differently and do things differently because of how, I mean it was just it' was a really cool part of the story.
1: No, that's exactly right, right so they they found a um, a, a differentiator for their business. And, and once they built it, right, and once they had that mindset um, and, and started to accumulate those, those assets, um, that, that created the sustainable competitive advantage, right? So he had a, he had a strategy that was, hey, we're going to optimize for our space. And then once he did, he had this asset of optimized buildings all over the country and led to higher profit margins, led to you know, all of the other benefits that they were able to accrue. So, yeah, I, I am, uh, when, when you use the jargon, sustainable competitive advantage, it often can go in one ear and out the other. And somebody thinks, oh, that's, you know, business school speak, or that's, you know, that, that's crazy. I'm a small business guy and, and, and I don't need to worry about that. But But if you think about it in terms of, hey, what are the practical things that I own and control that I can deploy more effectively that gives me an advantage over my competition. Um, it really does change and can change your mindset about running your business. So, so um that that's that's, uh, that's step number three. As we well, talk about, more, what are you? I was going to say one more
0: <laughs> comment on that, and then because I know we got you got a bunch more too. Is the you know there's this value discipline model or whatever that. It, it, just is that part of that where are you a products company or are a service company that's probably already all part of that process right so you're determining what is it that you're good at versus okay we're going to be products and the highest the highest costs and the lowest service so you I mean it's all kind of the whole product pricing mix is that all part of that
1: yeah we do we do some work in that space and and what i would tell people is not everyone has a sustainable competitive advantage i have a client that i'm working with right now that has two and I have a client that we barely could get to one kind of right where I'm like ah I'll give it to you but it's um it, it's a it's not uh maybe it's a competitive advantage I don't know how sustainable it is right so there are companies out there who are profitable that are that are that are even growing but they don't have a sustainable competitive advantage and what it does is it leads them to uh having a higher risk uh, business it leads them to always. Uh, fighting on the margins and and not being able to to get the the sales that they want or or achieve those margins that they that they might be able to if they had that sustainable competitive advantage. So so not everybody has it. We want to define what you have today and then we'll even spend a little bit of time working through okay, what what are the sustainable competitive advantages that you would like to be able to get? Mm-hmm. To? What mm-hmm. are some of the sustainable competitive advantages that your customers have or your uh, competitors have? And, and how could you get to a place where you have, um, have have developed something similar? So the fourth step in our process is doctrines. This really is based on the concept that uh, we don't often articulate our fundamental beliefs about who we are and about what we do, right? So so that comment I told you about that, that my, um, my client, he, he turned to his siblings mm-hmm. and said, hey, we're really good. With bricks and mortar, we're really good at building stuff. That is a doctrine, right? And conversely, we're not so good in the digital world. We're not so good with the with with concepts, ideas, or you know, uh, creative. We're we're much better on the other side. Those are doctrines, right? And and so when you think about your doctrines, they're going to define your destiny. And sometimes when we as business owners don't take the time to communicate and share. What we really believe and what we hold to be true, then we're operating in very, very different ways, right? So, if you think that the future of your business or the market is in um, is in toner, and and everybody else in your business thinks it's in paper, you know, and that's implicit, but you don't explicitly state it, right? Then there can lead to a lot of disagreement further down the line, especially when you're trying to to create some uh some some bullseyes and strategies. So so that's number four. And then number five is is helping to articulate if and what your flywheel is. So most successful businesses have a flywheel. And if you're familiar with that concept of a flywheel, um you'll instantly peg it to Jim Collins and his work and good to great. But if you're not, and it just sounds like a weird word that you don't <laughs> have any concept of. So so the flywheel in um uh, in, in effect, is basically you're trying to create this compounding momentum so that each step in your flywheel, which should be four to six steps, um, kind of leads to the next step. So the, in, the, the example that that Jim gives is he helped Amazon create and define their, their flywheel. And so step one for Amazon was lower prices on more offerings. So if you think about that, okay, we're going to offer lower prices on more offerings. What will that lead to? What does that what kind of momentum does that generate for the next step well it generates an increase in customer visits right so that if i can have lower prices on more offerings i can get more customers to visit which then leads to more third-party sellers right if all the customers are on amazon and if i'm a seller of goods and um, uh, if i'm a seller of goods then i want to be on that site so that's going to attract third-party sellers and then what does it do well, it allows you to expand your store and extend your distribution network. Okay, if I have a bigger store and I can extend my distribution, then I'm allowed, Then I'm going to be able to grow my revenues per fixed cost. And so this idea of the flywheel is that every step leads to the next and provides momentum kind of pushing forward. So we work with clients to think through what is your flywheel. And if you don't have one, how can you, what could you create for your flywheel? And so that so that's a um, that's an important step that we walk through, and then the, the next step is really just defining what the attractive opportunities are in in somebody's business. So a lot of people will do a SWOT analysis where they 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 talk about opportunities and they talk about strengths and they talk about risks. What we will do is we'll actually we we have opportunity matrices that we look at and 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 kind of break it out a little bit differently than a traditional SWOT. We get uh, a little more bang for our buck based on just the seeing the limits of a SWOT analysis. It's great. It's a good tool, but we've expanded it to to make it more focused on opportunities against whatever those
0: risks and threats and, and, and different things exist. And so. Um, well, and I think what happens here, Greg is like, and I'm I'm speaking from my own perspective here is, you know, I kind of got jaded over the years. Cause you are just like, Oh, these are all just bullshit. We're like, you know, because, oh, the SWOT analysis and like, he, at my, literally there's a scenario for, there's a, a show called House of Lies. So if the listeners haven't heard of this, it's amazing, Don Shields in it. And it's like, they're consultants and they go in there and they literally ramble off stuff like an uh, ANSOS matrix and SWOT analysis and the bell curve and all that stuff. And he goes, We just confuse the shit out of everybody to get more billable hours. And this whole show is about this and it's hilarious. But like, you know, actually doing a SWOT analysis or maybe and if you can explain that ANSI if I'm saying it right, Ansios Matrix and like, yeah. like why why that's beneficial to actually go through and do it because these tools exist for a reason. Yeah, no, they're
1: they're great tools and and oftentimes what happens is they're reserved for really large companies, right? Because it is hard and mm-hmm. and and people don't bring them together in a simple way. And so one of the things that that I've tried to do with this process is is take the best of the best, keep it simple, but also make it to where there is enough insight that by the time you get to the place where you're creating your strategies you can look and say, oh, yeah, of course we're going to do this, or of course we're going to try that. So the basics of the Ansoff matrix really is about looking at what you do today and the markets you serve today versus opportunities that you could do on the products and services side, so new products and services or new markets that you could go and serve. And so what it does is it says, okay, in the existing market with the existing products and services, what are opportunities that we could go and explore? But then we look and we say, okay, in our existing markets, what new products and services could we bring? So that's kind of a product development mindset. And so that's in our existing markets. But what about new markets? Where can we take our existing mm-hmm. products and services and go and develop a new market? And then, oh, are there any places out there where new products and services and, and also new markets. That would make sense for us. And so we'd lay those opportunities out in a way that makes sense for uh, our clients so that they can look and, and basically have a very clear map of, okay, if we say we have 8, 10 opportunities, here are the boxes that they fall into. I know mm-hmm. every time we get away from our existing market, our existing products and services, it's probably two or three times more difficult to win in those other boxes, right? So not impossible. And, and more risk. And, and a, a lot no. more risk. And so you've got to make a really compelling case for a new product and service in a new market. Well, why you, right? Like you don't have existing customers, you don't have existing products and services. Why would you go into and, and try to serve that? And why you and not somebody else? And so it, it really helps our clients look through and say, oh, okay, so we've got some opportunities here in our existing market, existing products and services, and boy, we love our market, but we could bring them. They trust us. They know us. We're only bringing them 10% of the solution. We could probably bring them 20% of the solution. What does that look like for us to go out and develop or acquire more products and services that we could bring back to the customers we're serving in our market? So so that's the basis of the Ansoff matrix. And, and it really just helps people think through uh, the opportunities
0: that are in front of them. Yeah, and intentionally moving towards something instead of just randomly doing it. That's right. So then then after that, like, so I think you've got a few more bullseye strategies and a couple more. So explain what bullseye means and that, what would that be number seven? Yeah, so number seven is the bullseye. And it really is just saying the two or three things that you're aiming to achieve
1: with your strategies. So now that you've laid out all of this analysis, right? Looking at your business, being very honest with yourself, now you're coming and saying, okay, projecting forward, looking forward, given that we have limited resources, what are we going to do? What, what are we going to try to achieve over the course of the next two or three years? And, and defining what those are is really critical because you know sometimes what a business owner will want to do is, I want to double revenue in the next three years. Well, that's a very different strategy or strategic approach than the owner that says, I want to grow 3% a year for the next three years, right? And so mm-hmm. defining what your success is, what is your bullseye is, is critical before you have um, a bite at the apple of saying, these are what our strategies are going to be, right? So, so a client that I worked with recently, um, older owner uh, in his late 60s, wants to own the business for another 10 or 15 years, has, has a family in his business, um, not overly aggressive in terms of growth. Wants to grow, but he's not looking to double the business in three years. What he's looking for is continued cash flow. What he wants to do is continue to train up his family in the business, and he set goals uh, against kind of that bullseye. A little bit lower risk tolerance. Um, not quite as urgent in terms of driving EBITDA. Um, willing to make some investment, but but not you know not a huge investment and so laying out that bullseye of this is what my success looks like influences what we then do in step 8 which is define your strategies right so so now that we know where we want to go we now say okay what are we going to do how are we going to create and maintain that sustainable competitive advantage what are those things that we're actually going to do to get to where we want to go. And there are lots of different types of strategies. And we already talked about kind of that high level concept of opportunistic versus prescriptive. But you have different strategies in terms of, uh, do I want to be on an acquisition strategy? Do I want to be on a divestiture strategy? Do I want to be on a a strategy that looks and says, we are going to be uh, moving up the kind of the value curve. Do we want to go down market? Do we do we need to to expand into new markets? What is kind of the broad strategy that we think is going to get us where we want to go? So you know, all of what we've done to this point is trying to get to that place where you can create that compelling, transformative strategy to say, hey, these are the things that we're going to do, and um, and and kind of this is our our plan, our prescription for going out and getting where we want to go.
0: And so like those, those defining your strategies, those are the real choices, right? So yep. are we going to be launching new products and then or like, in what time and, or are we going to yep. build on our customer service set center because we want, we determined that we were the value value added service provider. I mean, those are specific choices. I mean, that's, and I don't know what are the challenges you see in that part because all the other stuff seems fun to do, but then like yeah. now you have to do, shit yeah. like this is like time to actually make make decisions that's right
1: and and oftentimes what happens at this point it, there hopefully along the way there have been enough ahas to where people are saying mm-hmm. to themselves oh it doesn't make sense we've been talking about acquiring another company for the last five years it doesn't make sense with who we are and so they will look they will turn around and say by the time they get here Yes, we could go out and be on an acquisition strategy, but it doesn't make sense. Let's look more practically about what we can do. You know, what we could do is we could hire three people that have experience in this line of business. And rather than us trying to get into that line of work through an acquisition, we're going to try to do a a hire and build strategy because we have the economic model that, that would support a hire and build. We don't have an economic model that would support us going out and doing an acquisition. So Mm -hmm. so the goal of everything that has led to it is to get to that place where there's much more clarity on making those trade-off decisions. And strategy, again, Mm -hmm. I I work with very few clients who tell me we have no ideas how we could grow uh, our profits or our revenues. I have (laughs) I have a lot of clients that would look and say, I have a lot of clients that would look and say, no uh, we've got 10 ideas and we don't know which of the one or two or three strategies that we should actually pursue.
0: So I love it. And I know we're going to be running short on time here. A sec, so maybe wrap up with the next two. And then I want to talk about the financials too, because this is something and we're going to be doing a, an episode on this as well. And it, it, it's tying it to reality too. So maybe kind of tie up your two and then we can go into the financials
1: yeah that sounds great. Let's talk about the last two. Um, these are basically ways that you can now go and implement your strategies for folks that have a good operating system in place, um, it's very natural fit right and And the last two can really be just integrated into the existing process but if if that doesn't exist for a company, if they haven't matured to the place where they have a, a, a good professional management system, then step number nine is priority planning where we will walk through some practical ways that they can implement their, their strategies. So I typically will work with a company and say, no more than five strategies, the ideal number of strategies are two or three. And, um, and so we'll, we'll work with them on a priority planning that says, these are the things we're going to do on a quarterly basis. It's amazing how many clients that I work with that have done strategic planning in the past and they would say, yeah, every year we would get together in the conference room and build a strategic plan and then we wouldn't look at it until the following year, where we would get back in the conference room and, and kind of see if we accomplished anything. And so, really, this, this step is making sure that there's some quarterly accountability that here are the key action steps that need to get done. Um, and we call that priority planning because every strategy would then have some priorities that we would lay out for the quarter, for the year, and then you're working against objectives underneath that. So, so basic stuff if you are in that mode. Um, mm-hmm. A little bit more uh, advanced if, if, hey, this is new for your company. You're not used to having um, monthly, quarterly... Objectives. Accountability. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And then the last part is just a strategy scorecard where you're tracking and reporting key metrics. You want to make sure that um, you're documenting the success along the way. You also are documenting you know, areas where you might need to pivot or change, but you are, you are looking at your results. That are related to um, these strategies that you've laid out. So, um, hopefully, you've got an operating dashboard. You've got some kind of a, uh, you know, a, a metrics a sheet that you're looking at weekly, monthly, quarterly. Um, and this would just say, hey, what, how are we doing against our strategy? Right? What? Here are the strategies mm-hmm. that we've laid out. How are we doing both on an execution standpoint and then um, conceptually on? How are these strategies making a difference? So. So that- When I
0: think it, this is, it's it's great, Greg. Because uh, and I know I keep going back to us. So the people that are listening that haven't r- aren't running that. Some the, the execution. This is where everything falls falls apart, right? This is why the three binders sit there. It's the same thing as a workout and diet plan that you just don't do. It's hard work. And by the way, this is why I believe that private equity firms make a bunch of money because they do the hard work. Yep. Because there's a huge pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But the point is, is this is your pot of gold that you can grow and. So you've got the inputs, like you said, and this is where the the accountability comes into play. And I think what's great about EOS or Rockefeller Habits or OKRs or whatever the tools are to implement this stuff, it's gotten to become, it's become more commonplace to have something like that, but they have been missing what we've been discussing. So why did you make the choices that you have? So you're good at executing, but you might not be executing the right thing. So we're kind of molding those two together. And then the next and final thing that I want to just, I want to talk about, cause we're going to be doing a podcast episode on this is you have to make money, yep. right? Like this has to be tracked and it has to be tied to financials and budgeting and forecasting. And this is another one of the eight value drivers that is so weak in most of the companies we look into because it's hard work to actually put these finances together. So explain what good looks like and how this ties to actual financials
1: well you know warren buffett and and most people know warren buffett and what he's been able to achieve in his career what i like to to highlight with him is that he says that accounting is the language of business and so we can talk and 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 define lots of things that are that are strategies and are are absolutely essential for you know growing your business but if you don't know what your business is doing in terms of your financials and the metrics that show up on just your your, your primary financial statements, you're doing yourself a grave disservice, right? Because it is easy to convince ourselves that we are doing a great job because we have hit three objectives for the month or for the quarter. But then you look at that cash flow statement and you have $0 in the bank, or you look at your your P&L, and you've got a 2% margin on, on uh, the business that you've sold. Or you look at your balance sheet and you realize that your, um, the, 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 the bank will never loan you another dime because you are so extended and, and have absolutely no uh, strength on your balance sheet. And so you have to be able to tie it back to the, the financials, to, to your ultimate, the, the language of your business, right? If, if it's not translating back then you have left a big gap and so i always in in that company overview we do some basic financial analysis but really what works the best is if you have a more detailed financial analysis that that you can kind of leverage whether it's done by you know your cpa or your outsourced cfo or by your internal cfo but really understanding what are those value drivers in the business what are those things that are that are creating um, the, the, the money. return, the money that you need to fuel everything that you're doing. So absolutely essential.
0: Well, I think in, that that'll be in the other episode where it's it, making sure that you're recording, where are you making the money? Are the strategies that you picked making you money and building the budget and the forecast from the ground up to, sh- to, to literally show that everything we just decided is going to work. And I think that's how when we look at why i i see you know non value creating companies or companies that are like are struggling in certain areas is they didn't do the strategic they did they didn't do one of these you have a, you have a good strategic plan but not a good execution operating system or and you don't know how to track the financials or good financials with no plan so you just it's kind of like this three pronged approach where if you're doing them then you're going to be able to like wake up one morning and say and hopefully look through the front windshield and say we're not going to be making money in this area at the end of the year. Yeah. Like we intended. Yeah. I mean, because it's really Like you said, it all comes down to EBITDA. That's the whole point, right? right.
1: That's <laughs> exactly right. And, and if you don't understand how these are interacting with one another, then um, you, you, can still, you can still find success, but you, you, it, it's more luck than scale, right? It's, it's that idea of, um, you know, sometimes it's better to fail because you know why you failed than it is to succeed accidentally. And so not understanding how you know your strategic plan ties back to your financials and vice versa um, it is a real failure of, of uh, ownership of leadership.
0: Well, and in, in like to your point too, is you could be making a bunch of money and and like a well, combination of luck and skill. But like, if you did this, you could be making 10 times more money. That's right. So it's not that you're not making money, but you're just, you're leaving so much on the table. That's right. All right, So I know we got to get wrapping up here, but so Greg, what is the, what's the best way to get in touch with you? If people want to know more information? You know, I think the best way would be through LinkedIn.
1: Um, you can just search for Greg Meredith. There are some Greg Merediths on LinkedIn, but you could type in Dayton. That's where I live. And um, that's a great way. You could also email me at dgmeritus at gmail.com. Either of those ways would be great. Love to talk to anybody that is thinking about uh, strategic planning or wrestling through these these items. And Ryan, I'll leave you with one other thought just on um, strategies. And I've talked a lot about compelling strategies, transformative strategies versus things that we call strategies that aren't. And I would challenge all the listeners to just look at the strategies that you've laid out and apply what A.G. Lafley, the former CEO of Procter & Gamble, called the opposite rule. So he laid out this idea of the opposite rule and and says, basically, if the opposite of your strategy is absurd, you need to keep working, right? So uh, an example I give on that is if if your strategy is have great people, hire great people, um, the opposite of that is hire terrible people. That's not a strategy, right? That's just something that everybody wants to do. Now, if your strategy says, um, hire people, pay them 30% more than my competitors, and try to have the best people in the industry and be willing to invest in their development, training, and retention, then that's a strategy, right? Because the opposite of that is, oh, you know what? We're going to have good people but we're going to invest that money in product development or we're going to invest that money in, you know, equipment or something else. So awesome. So make sure that your strategy is past the opposite rule. Um, if, if, if the opposite awesome. isn't, uh, is isn't a viable strategy, then you failed, you got to keep on working. So, so that's just a really simple that's way really for good. people to think about, like, do I have real strategies or do I not? And, and so if you don't have real strategies, we'd love to hear from you. I know Ryan, you, uh, you're working with a lot of folks in this space. And so, um, you know, reach out to us and, and let's talk about how you can get some compelling strategies.
0: I love it. And that is a literally, I, I'm, I'm loving that the opposite. It's the same thing, even with core values. It's like, it, if it's the opposite is crazy. It's probably just a table stake, right? Like my core value is integrity. Yeah. Okay, so your opposite is to be a shitty person. That's right. That's right. <laughs> like, like it's not an like, actual differentiated, a different, a differentiated, uh, thoughtful strategy. That's exactly right. Greg has been an absolute blast having having you on the show. Thanks, Tom.
1: Hey, man, loved it. Loved it. Thanks for having me. It's a great, uh, great conversation. Appreciate the opportunity to talk.
0: If you like that episode, I suggest you check out our Growth and Exit Bootcamp based on the five principles where we dive into two case studies that show how two companies grow the value of their companies to get the exits that they want to hit their financial targets that tie in to what they ultimately want from their company and how they hired the team of advisors to get them there. If you have more questions on strategic planning, reach out to Greg. He's coming on board to the Arcona team to help us, after our clients go through the bootcamp, implement their strategic plan. And if you have questions about the bootcamp agenda, reach out to me and I'm happy to walk you through what you're going to walk away with when you walk out of that second day. So with that being said, I will see you next week where we're going to talk about the financial value driver and what good financials look like, how to be doing forecasting and budgeting and really getting clarity on that EBITDA so you can track and measure your valuation on a day-to-day basis.